Please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. See what I did there? The Holy Trinity is the core of the Christian faith. Holy Trinity is the center of what we believe as Christians, and, and yet it's often ignored, or it's tacked on to the end of something. Think about it for a moment. How often do we pray to Jesus? How often do we pray to the Father? How often, maybe during Pentecost, do we pray to the Holy Spirit? And each person of the Trinity is properly prayed to, don't get me wrong. Yet, outside of liturgical worship, we seem to miss the balance of praying in the name of the Trinity. There's a particular formulary in liturgical worship that makes us maintain the balance. Notice in our colleagues, how do we pray? We start out, Almighty and everlasting God, or perhaps Eternal Father. Then we go on to petition and thank. And then, as in today's collect, found on your uh, insert there for Trinity Sunday, collect of the day, we pray, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign one God forever and ever. Amen. We pray that way because it keeps us balanced in worshiping the three persons and the one unity that is God. We can also pray that way whenever we make the sign of the cross, which is why I encourage people to do that. I know for some people that seems like a Roman Catholic thing. Maybe that maybe that's your experience. I went to a Roman Catholic grade school for nine years, so it comes natural to me. But it's really a good thing, and it's not essentially a Roman Catholic thing. It's a church universal thing. It's something that all of us should embrace. The first great truth of Trinity Sunday is what we call the truth of monotheism. Jesus declared it himself as the beginning of the most important commandment in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 when he says this. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Think about that for a moment. It doesn't strike us as being overtly important today, right? Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. We don't see monotheism challenged by pagan gods like the ancient Hebrews did. We don't have to worry about the gods of the Sumerians or the gods of the Egyptians. We don't see that for what a gift it is. But there are still pagan gods in this world, if you think about it. There's still formal pagan gods, in fact. Think of Hinduism. Those are pagan gods. 
And of course, there's more informal ones too, which we've talked about before. But Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's the first part of the lesson of the Holy Trinity for us today. Why? Because it's essential to who we believe God to be. God is one. He is unified. He is simple in the theological language of the theologians. He, he is all things created and good. So we're not talking pantheism here, that God's in all things, but we're told in the scriptures that in him all things were made and in him all things hold together in their being. We call this transcendence, right? That God is transcendent throughout all things. What does that mean? It means that, that what's the transcontinental railroad? It went across the continent, right? It means that God's transcendence in all things. He's unchanging. He's commanding, and he causes all things to hold together. The reality is that God's unity is challenged, though, today in different ways than it was in the past. Take, for example, the very practical sayings that sometimes you'll hear, sometimes even from Christians. Religion's okay, so long as you keep it to yourself. I just think that everyone should sincerely believe in God, whatever they believe. You've heard these things, right? Or maybe this one, Allah, the God of the Muslims, is the same as our God. We all worship the same God. Don't impose your God on me. You hear that all over. But all of those statements in their own way actually undermine the objective fact that there is one God. There is one God. There can only be one God. It's logical. Follow the logic. What is God? If there is one God, then he must be all things. All good, all benefit, benevolent, all powerful, almighty. You see, you can't just tack those words on to a created being or a God among other gods that don't make sense. If you have Zeus, and you have Athena, you can't have them both be almighty or all-benevolent. That doesn't make any sense. Either one is and the other isn't. Well, actually, by logic, both cannot be. Right? You see? So the unity of God is a really important thing. He is either the God that Jesus revealed to us, or he's the God that Muhammad reveals to the Muslims. He's not both. He's either the God found in the Holy Scriptures, or he's the God of New Age in your own making. He's not both. He cannot be. It's actually, it seems to run so countercultural to what we exist in as a pluralistic society, as a society that embrace, embraces everything as truth, right? And it's true that God has parts of his truth in other cultures and even in other religions, but there is only one revealed truth of who God is. 
that Jesus points to the Father. Jesus is not some kind of shape-shifting God that moves with times, or that accommodates himself to your passions, or that changes because culture decided to change. But we Christians believe that Jesus revealed to us exactly who God is. He is one, he's the Almighty. He's all good, he's to be loved, obeyed, and worshiped. And of course, Jesus is picking up on the first covenant, that truth that's given to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. As I said earlier, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We also have an image of God here in Isaiah, the prophet. And I, I don't want to go through it systematically, that would take far too long. But look with me, if you would, at the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 6, and then compare it with me to the New Testament reading, Revelation 4.11. As Holly read those today, did you notice similarities between the two passages? Hopefully you did. They're both talking about being in the presence of of the Almighty. Isaiah is giving his impression. St. John the Divine is giving his impression in Revelation. But they're speaking in stereo to the same truth. Who is God described as in his unity? Well, he's described what? As a king upon the throne. In verse 1 of Isaiah and verse 2 of Revelation 4. He's described as bright and gem-like in verse 5 of Isaiah and 5 of Revelation. He's described emphatically as holy. Look at what both see the worshipers doing in the presence of God. They're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why do we say that? Holy Communion every week. Because we are entering the throne room of God and worshiping with the elders, with the seraphim and the cherubim, giving God his due as he revealed himself to us. I just gotta throw this one in. God likes incense too. Look at verse 4. There's lots of smoke. He's one who's worshipped ceaselessly in Isaiah 6, 3, Revelation 4, 8. And he's one who looks to be one with his people in verse 6. This is not some fuzzy, unsure God of internet memes. It's not some confused picture of God that we get from popular culture. And notice it's not a God who's indifferent. Rather, when God speaks, the thunder rolls. Modern West Western Christianity has lost this transcendence of God. Oh, we give it lip service, it's true. But we don't acknowledge God in all of his might with our adoration for our daily lives and devotion. All you have to do is look at how Americans treat worship. It's an option. Like going out to a restaurant. Yeah, I think I'll go to church today, and maybe I'll go to 
Olive Garden afterwards. But now I won't go to church today because that's going to get in the way of my going and watching the soccer game. Right? So many Americans treat church not as the worshiping of the Almighty God, but as a casual event that they may elect to or may not elect to attend. And look at what we do attend. And I'm sorry, this is going to hurt. We come late. We don't come prepared. We come chattering as we walk into the Holy of Holies, walking into the church. We're talking, not in hushed voices, as if we're in the presence of the Holy One, Israel. We don't even dress up as much as we would dress up to go to a wedding. Why is a bride and groom more important than God Almighty? Think about that. You're meeting with God Himself. You know, I was struck when I was in Europe and Italy. Um, they would not let you into a church if you were a woman without your shoulders covered. And if you were a man, they would not let you into church in shorts. I had the very embarrassing experience of going to St. Peter's Square and forgetting this. And fortunately, I had a raincoat, a long French coat, raincoat, and I was able to put that on so that I could actually get in to St. Peter's Basilica. They didn't care whether I was Catholic or not. This is God. He is objectively holy. This is his house. You need to treat it that way, was the message. Now, can this be taken too far? Of course it can. Of course it can. I'm not saying that we have to come and greet these suits and ties to church. But I am saying that how we treat the house of God how we treat being in the presence of God should be reflected in our behavior somehow. So hear me. God's not against shorts. God's not against wearing things that are more comfortable, particularly in this sanctuary, in the summertime without air But ask yourself as you come to the house of the Lord, have I prepared myself to come to the house of the Lord physically? And spiritually, for while it's true that God doesn't really care about what we wear, it's also true that God does care about how we approach Him. We lose that transcendence of God when we don't treat it as such and act too casually. All those in the American church are symptoms of a loss of that unity or transcendence. I was reading an article this week in a magazine that I take, it's called First Things, and it was an article by Jacob Williams, who was a a Briton, someone from Britain, um, who became a Muslim. I don't know that he ever was a Christian, but he became a Muslim. He was writing this article as to why he became a Muslim, and one of the things he said was that as he went around to the glorious chapels and churches of Oxford and University, he was struck by the fact that nobody seemed to actually believe it. Now, you can't know the people's souls that he ran into, but the impression that was given was that none of them truly believed that this was a God who be respected and lived by, a God to, who had the authority 
to say anything into their lives. And he came across Islam, and, and Islam is very clear in some things. And one of the things he cited was the Muslim Shahada, I think it's pronounced Shahada. There is no God but God, is the first commandment for them. And when he went to a mosque, he saw that people truly took that seriously. There is no God but God, and you're not God, right? So get in line. Now, of course, Islam is only that God. Islam, literally, to be a Muslim means to submit, right? That's what the word means. So to submit to God. But we as Christians see that as an important part, but only as half of who God is, right? But it's not a half to be lost. The other half is what Jesus points to when he calls this Almighty God Father. When he calls him Father, he balances that transcendence of God with what theologians will call the imminence of God, the closeness of God, the relational dearness of God. And they're not working against one another, but they're actually held together to show a full picture of who God is. Jesus, is, Jesus believed and taught that God is Father. In last week's Gospel, the Apostle Philip asks Jesus to show them the Father. Do you remember John 14, 9-11? Jesus refers them back earlier in John's Gospel to 10-30, where he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. How can you ask to see the Father? How long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In our Athanasian Creed that we'll say today, we express this theological reality when we say, such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. Or when we say the Nicene Creed, from week to week, we say of one substance or of one being with the Father is Jesus. The practical importance of this is clear too, just as the transcendence of God is important. So God, in his diversity, in his three persons, is important. What's this mean? Well, that in short, there's a unity of substance, or essence of God, and there's a diversity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know, that's, that's deep, right? It's a mystery. It's a mystery as to how that happens, but that's what we say, that God is one substance, and yet three, three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Godhead is another name for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's, more, it's very practical that we see God, the Trinity, as also almighty, all good, and all, well, anything that's been created. Why is this important? You know, I was struggling because sometimes with these theological realities, it's hard to bring it down to earth 
It's hard to see the practical implications of it. But there, let me point out just a few. First of all, without the Trinity, there's no creation. That seems kind of practical, right? Think about it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit back in Genesis. How was creation made? According to John 1. How was creation made? Does it just involve one of the persons in the Trinity? No, it involves them all. Second of all, without the Holy Trinity, there's no salvation. Why? Because the very ability for a person to come down and die for your sins and mine comes from the Trinity, you see? If there is no Trinity, there is no Jesus who's God who can take our place as God and die for our sins and make a perfect atoning sacrifice for God. Therefore, you and I are of a creed. Third, that the Holy Spirit even if Jesus did come and die for your sins, who cares if there's no Holy Spirit? That's a nice historical event, but the Holy Spirit's the one that renews us. The Holy Spirit's the one by whom we're born again, in whom we're brought back to life as Christians. To see, it's crucial. It's really hard to come up with the practical things of the Trinity because it pervades all things, which of course makes perfect sense theologically, right? It's God's plan that comes forth from his very being. God is both unity and community. Family, in fact. St. Paul writes to the Ephesians that families are all in the name of God. So we get this image too. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power from his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted, grounded in love, and we'll stop there, because it continues on. But what's St. Paul saying, you see? He's just saying, once again, what I just said, that it's in the power of the Trinity that these things happen in our spiritual and physical lives. A very, in a very real sense, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a family. And this doctrine is important to us because Without it, you have nothing. You've probably also heard people say God is love, which is true. This is one of the arguments that St. John uses. If you have your Bibles, look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. This isn't in your scripture booklet, so you'd have to have your Bible to it and look at it. First epistle of John, or the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 9. St. John, the same apostle that wrote the gospel, writes this in 1 John 4 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son to the world, so that we might live through him. 
And this is love. Stop. And this is love. 1 John 4, 10. What's the apostle referring to? He's referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, being sent down to us to see. This is how we say God is love. This is the, this totally self-sacrificial love of God to send His Son for us. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To make the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So when we stand and say, as we're about to do in the Athanasian Creed, this is the Catholic faith, which, if anyone does not believe that faithfully and firmly, he cannot be saved. When we say that, we're not being mean. We're not just requiring people to believe in a dogma because that's what we believe. But we're actually stating a fact that you cannot be saved without this reality. You see, you logically cannot be saved without this reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no other mechanism because there is no other name by which men can be saved. Without the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no salvation, no redemption, no Christmas, no Easter, no resurrection, no ascension. As we talked about last week, without these things, we would be left stuck in our sins, and the world would be hopeless. So you see, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, while it's hard to put your finger on how it's practically important to your life, it is your life as a Christian. It deals with every single bit of your life as a Christian. It is the distinctive of faith. So today, as we worship and praise God for who He is, remember who we're praising. The eternal and unchanging God. The transcendent God. As well as the loving, self-sacrificing God. The imminent God who died for you. It makes all the difference, friends, and it changes everything about your life when we hold those two things as a reality. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.